All right. Good morning, church. How are we doing today? It's good to see all of you. I'm so glad that you're here and have uh, joined us uh, to worship this morning. Will you uh, just join me in a word of prayer as, uh, as we begin today? Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come before you. We just thank you for being uh, the only one who is truly worthy of our love, that, that you're worthy of every, every bit, every ounce of love and adoration and worship and affection that we can pour out towards you. Uh, that you're deserving of it all, and, and far more than we can give, God. But we, we recognize that in you, uh, we have a perfect God, a perfect loving pa- Father, a, a perfect holy and righteous judge that we can come before. And when our affection is placed on you, it's never misplaced, God. And so I thank you for that. Uh, I pray that we would see that truly about you today, and uh, that we would just come with a, a sense of reverence and, and humility and all, just, just gratitude that when we come to you, that we can come in, in security and confidence that you have our best uh, desires in your heart, God, that you desire what is best for us, even though it might be challenging for us, it might be difficult, it might not look right in the moment, but we know that your desire for us is always the best thing for us. And so, God, just help us to approach you rightly today. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 As we come to the story of Samson, turn to chapter 14, and we're going to continue the story of Samson, and Brian did a great job of, of introducing the Samson as a, as a judge, as a savior, that an angel came to his parents and foretold that he was going to be this great savior of his people, and there were some instructions about how he was to live. He was to be separate under this Nazarite vow, which meant that he couldn't eat of unclean things and that he couldn't uh, drink wine or, or fruit of the vine and that he couldn't ever shave his head. No razor was to come to his head and he was, he was not to, to do that. And that was to make him separate and distinct. And so there's this great sense of expectation coming out of, out of last week's passage of saying, wow, this guy is special. He's set apart. Who is this guy going to be? What is he going to do? What is he going to accomplish? And then as you, as you read through chapters 14 and 15 and see his story unfold, uh, what comes to mind for me uh, is uh, this great cinematic masterpiece, uh, which is known as the Lego movie. How many of you guys have seen the Lego movie, right? Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, I've, I've, uh, I've recommended some bad movies in the past. I apologize for that. This one is one that I feel safe in recommending to you. You can watch and uh, it's, it's clever, and it's funny, and it's witty, uh, but there's this guy, Emmett, who is the savior. He's the special. He's been foretold and prophesied about, but the problem is that he's just this really ordinary, exceptionally unexceptional guy, and, uh, and, uh, and so his ideas are terrible. At one point, he's trying to help save uh, the, the crew of master builders, and his idea that he comes up with is a double-decker couch, and, uh, and it's just like the worst idea ever, right? And so Batman looks at him, and he says, he says, you are so disappointing on so many levels. And when we look at Samson and we read through his story, there's an instance in which we look at it and we say, man, Samson, you're so disappointing on so many levels, right? Like, uh, he, he's just, um, he's given all this power. He has the Spirit of the Lord upon him, and yet so many of the decisions that he makes are driven by lust and pride and revenge and anger and aggression. And, and, and it's just like, man, what? a disappointing Savior, and yet he's exactly the Savior that the people of Israel deserved, right? He's such a great representation of where they were at this point in their history. And, uh, and so one of the challenges that we look at is to see he is disappointed on so many levels, and yet he is a judge and a Savior that God chose who makes his way into the Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame 
of faith heroes, and, and that's just something to wrestle through. We're like, man, this guy screws up left and right. He does all these things that are weird, and yet he's held up as a hero of faith. How can these things exist within one person? And so that's what we're going to kind of unpack and look at today. Now, as, as Philadelphians, we're very accustomed to disappointing saviors, right? Like we, uh, especially in the sports world, this is not a foreign concept to us at all. I, I could go into Chip Kelly. I don't even need to say that, right? Like, that's, a, that's just a understood what that's all about. There was another guy named Andrew Bynum a couple years ago. Uh, most of you can't even remember back before the series where, where the Sixers were just losing games on purpose, right? That's what they've been doing for the past three years or so. But before that, they had this blockbuster four-team trade where they sent off Andre Iguodala, who, by the way, went on to be back, back-to-back NBA champs. Uh, well, not yet. It's coming. And... Uh, and he was the MVP of the finals. We got rid of him to get this guy, Andrew Bynum, to pay him $16.9 million to never set foot on the basketball court, right? So disappointing on so many levels, right? So we can, we can relate to that uh, on and on. Uh, politically, we've experienced this where people that are held up to be a savior are just disappointing. They let us down. Uh, and even within the Christian world, that the people that we look up to, they write books, they preach sermons we listen to online, and then, and, and then things happen and they end up falling from grace and there's this, this disappointment, right? And so, so many times our saviors are disappointing on so many levels. Um, but one biblical reality we've got to look at, right? It, it, there was one perfect savior. In the whole Bible, there's, there's one perfect Savior, and, and everybody else is disappointing on one level or another. If they're not disappointing by the account in the Bible, it's just because the Bible didn't give us the full account, right? So sometimes the Bible doesn't tell us negative things, but we know that we're all broken, sinful people, and God has to work through broken people or else he wouldn't be working, right? That He has one option, and it's broken people. And so there's encouragement and there's discouragement in that. We'll look at both sides of that today. Uh, But let's pick up the story. Uh, We're going to look at all of chapters 14 and 15, but verses 1 through 4 in chapter 14 really set the stage and kind of show us everything that that we kind of need to see that's going to come and be unfolded as shown in those first four verses. And so let's read through it. Uh, Judges chapter 14 begins in verse 1. It says, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up, and he told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and his mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now where have we heard that before, right? (laughs) His father and his mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. And so there's, there's a bunch in here that we need to unpack and take a look at. The first thing that we got to look at is that he went down to Timnah and he saw uh, this, this daughter of the Philistines. And this was not, he didn't leave the promised land and go to Philistine territory and come over and like, oh wow, over here's uh, outside, of, outside of a realm, right? This wasn't a Philistine raiding party that came in, that, that the Philistines were living right alongside the Israelites. There was total cultural assimilation beginning. They were living essentially side by side and the, the Israelites had just accepted, man, the Philistines are ruling us we are, we are a captive nation. Uh, we, they, they call the shots. They're ruling over us, and we're, uh, we're just subservient to them. And they had just come to a place of acceptance. As Brian pointed out in the sermon last week, Israel, this is the one time in the judges' cycle where the Israelites never call out to God. They never say, God, come rescue us. They've given up on even calling out for salvation. They've just completely accepted the Philistines' domination of them. The fight has been taken out of them. 
Samson comes, and, and at this point we see Samson is really kind of an embodiment of the people of Israel, right? He says, hey, I want her because she's right in my eyes. I was supposed to be separate and distinct and set apart for the Lord. Uh, I was supposed to be uh, holy and separate for him, but no, uh, I want to connect with these, these, uh, these heathen nations that I've, we've come up against that are worshiping false gods, and I want to connect myself more deeply and chase after them because of my own sinful desires and because it's what looks right to me. And so Samson is doing as an individual what we see the whole nation of Israel doing in this season. And if we're honest, it's what we see our nation doing at this time, right? Like this idea of everybody doing what is right in their own eyes is very common in the U.S. today, right? In, in our experience of Western culture that the people have their own sets of uh, morals and there's there's lots of people that come under the Christian umbrella that say like, hey, I, I like this and this out of my church tradition, but this seems better to me. And, and where God lays out specific things in the word, they go a different direction because it seems right in their eyes, right? And so, so this is very culturally relevant to where we're at today. And so Samson in many ways is is the right judge and that he's a representation of what the people of Israel are like at this time. Now his disobedience to his parents might seem normal to us, right? Like, ah, mom and dad, I know you want to set me up with them, but uh, I got my own ideas about what I want to do, right? Like this is, this is not uncommon. But culturally at this time, this would have been a great offense to his parents because uh, there was much more value placed in the family, the community, the tribe, the nation, that, that, that the benefit of the community was supposed to be placed above the benefit of the individual. And so Samson is saying like, hey, I know that's what, what you want, but I've got my own ideas. Uh, we can really connect with that as postmodern people that are very individualistic, very self-driven. We're always looking out for our own thing. And so in some ways, Samson is a good savior for us to connect to, not in a good way, right? But, but our flaw in many ways is the same as his flaw, that he was, he was being very selfish and individualistic in his approach and his thoughts in this moment. And, you know, I, I love the picture here of his parents, right? His father and his mother, uh, they say to him, uh, is there not a woman among the elders of your relatives or among all our people that you must go after an uncircumcised Philistine? It's like the, the stereotypical Jewish family, right? Where the, the mother's like, isn't there a good Jewish girl that you can find, right? And she's not doing this. My wife loves my impressions. That's why I married her. Uh, the, this is not like racism, right? This is not ethnocentric, like, oh, we just want to keep it in the community, in the, in the, in the family. This is, this is a desire to be culturally uh, religiously distinct, that they understood that if Samson marries, here they had an angel come and tell him, your son's going to be the special savior. Now he's going to marry the very people that he was called to save them from. So his parents are like, this does not make sense. This doesn't work. That There's this significance in having this distinction. And so I just want to take a moment to talk about uh, the same distinction is called upon by us that the Bible calls to us about not being unequally yoked. And God gives us this command because he loves us. He recognizes the hardship and the heartache and the difficulty and the temptation to, to sin and to compromise that exists when a believer and an unbeliever are married to each other. Now, I know that there are some of us in this room here that are in that situation, that there's people that are married to someone who doesn't share your faith in Jesus and maybe um, uh, that you're not in the same place with that. And you can attest to how difficult that situation can be. Because if, if Jesus, if following Jesus, if being a Christian is just kind of an, an add-on um, hey, you know, I'm, I'm this person and I, I, you know, I like tennis and I like watching sports on TV and, and I go to church on Sunday. You know what I mean? If it's just kind of like this amalgamation of things, then maybe it's not that big of a deal. And yeah, my spouse doesn't share those same sort of things, but we're walking, you know, opposites attract and we can work through that. 
But if Jesus is at the very center of your life, if the gospel is driving your motivations and your desires, and if the gospel is, is helping you decide what is right and wrong throughout the day and everything that you're doing, then it becomes very difficult to square that up in partnership in a marriage with someone who doesn't share that same motivation and goal and desire. And, and it just becomes very painful and difficult, and it causes a lot of strife and, and challenge. And so that's where the Bible says, hey, uh, you shouldn't pursue a relationship like that. Now, we know stories of that where, where it's worked out, right? And the, and the biblical call is that if you're married to somebody who's not a believer, to remain in the marriage, to, to not seek to get out of it, but seek rather to live such a godly life and to, to pursue Jesus in such a way that you set a great example and your unbelieving spouse is called to Jesus through your example, right? So that's what you're called to do. But if you're here and you're single uh, or you're in a situation where you're, you're pursuing somebody, I would encourage you that that should be um, that should not be a negotiable factor, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, that, that, uh, that, that having your spouse, the person you're pursuing, be a follower of Jesus, that should be really high or at the top of the list, that that shouldn't be something that you're willing to compromise on because it's going to create so many problems and you're going to lose your ability to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. On the, on the flip side, if there's a, a marriage of two imperfect, broken people, but Jesus is at the center of their lives and at the center of their marriage, uh, then there's this incredible grace and power that can flow through a marriage and in a picture of what God wants us to see. Uh, the picture that he says is the picture of Jesus and his church, that that's how a husband is called to love his wife the way Jesus loves the church, and, and, a, and a bride is, is called to submit to her husband in the way that, uh, uh, that, we, that we submit to Jesus, right? So there's supposed to be this beautiful relationship of, of mutual submission and love and care and and God wants the best for us. And so that's what he calls out for us. And so I just want to take a moment to say that's what Samson's parents wanted for him. They're like, you know, if you're going to be the savior of your people to save them from the Philistines, don't go marry a Philistine, right? Um, it seems logical, but love throws logic out the window sometimes. Now here's the most challenging part of this whole thing. Verse 4, it says, His father and his mother did not know that it was from the Lord for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Here's the deal. Uh, last week we looked at uh, after the angel appeared to Samson's mom and told her that he was coming, and she went and told her husband. He's like, hey, can we call that angel back in? Because I've got some follow-up questions about how to raise him and some of the things that we ought to do. And I kind of want to know how this is going to work out, which any wise guy would do, right? That's, you know, that's, I would do the same, right? So the angel is gracious enough to reappear, uh, but doesn't give any additional detail. And I think part of the reason of that is because what if, what if you would have said, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to raise this child. He's going to be proud, disobedient, arrogant, vengeful, uh, just driven by lust. And he's going to be such a crazy character that all God has to do is pour a little bit of Holy Spirit supernatural strength into him. And he's just going to be a time bomb. He is going to blow up a conflict between the Philistines and your people. Your people aren't going to like him. The Philistines aren't going to like him. Nobody's going to like him. And he's going to uh, drive conflict because your people have become so complacent that they won't fight against the Philistines anymore. And I need somebody who's going to stir things up. That's, that's what your son's going to do, right? <laughs> do you think his parents would have been like, oh, good, okay, thanks, that sounds great, um, right? He spared them. Maybe another evidence of his grace was him not telling what Samson's life was going to look like. God chose Samson not because of, of, of so many of his great characteristics, but because he was such a ticking tom, time bomb that God could use him to incite conflict. God wanted to pick a fight between the Israelites and the Philistines, and the Israelites were no longer willing to fight. 
And so he chose Samson as his man and said, this guy is so, he's such a wild man uh, that if I just set him loose, he is going to wreak havoc and he is going to incite conflict, which is exactly what I need right now for my people. So that's crazy to think about, right? That God wanted this to happen. Did God want Samson to go after the Philistine woman? I would argue no. God knew that he was going to do it. Doesn't mean that he wanted him to do it. Right? And so there's this difference between God accomplishing his goals either through our obedience or our disobedience and then our moral accountability for what we do and then also our blessing or, or the penalty that we receive for our actions. Right? God's going to get his will either way. Uh, God is not uh, held captive to our obedience. Oh, man, that, I wanted to do this, but I can't get anybody to obey me, so now I can't do it, right? God's going to accomplish his will no matter what. But we have a choice to either be used through our disobedience or through our obedience. And when we do it through our obedience, we experience the blessing and the joy of, it, of experience. There's this incredible comparison and contrast between uh, the very first, going back to the first judge, uh, Othniel and, and Oxa, right? And uh, he had this godly woman that he was pursuing in marriage. They started this family. They cleared the land. They did everything the right way. It was awesome. That's what it was meant to be. Samson is the exact contrast. He's pursuing all the wrong women for the wrong reasons. And uh, instead of experiencing blessing, he brings a lot of pain and, and struggle and strife upon himself because of the decisions. And yet, God still uses him. We see this in Scripture, right? You remember the story of Joseph. And uh, Joseph had this dream that all his brothers were going to bow down to him. And so an incredible godly wisdom, he went and told his brothers, like, hey, I had a dream. You guys are all going to bow down before me. Isn't that awesome? And so they responded by throwing him in a pit. And uh, they were planning to kill him, but then they decided to sell him off as a slave instead. And then he goes to Egypt and goes through all these trials and struggles and hardships and ultimately rises up to power in Egypt. And then there's a famine and his brothers come and bow down before him begging for food. And this is an opportunity to exact revenge upon them. But instead, he comes to him and he says, hey, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, right? Doesn't morally excuse you for what you did. What you did was wrong. You had bad motivations. You tried to kill me, right? But God had a better plan. And I can see the bigger picture of what God is doing. And now I'm willing to offer you forgiveness for that. And this wasn't just anybody. This was the who became the 12 tribes of Israel, came out of that mess, Right? We look at the, the, the death and the crucifixion of Jesus that Jesus says in John 10. He says, I willingly lay down my life. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. This is part of the, the Father's plan from the beginning uh, before time that this was his plan for salvation, right? So it was Jesus' plan, and he willingly laid down his life. But Judas was morally accountable for what he did. The Pharisees were morally accountable for what they did. Pilate was morally accountable. Herod was morally accountable. And you and I are morally accountable for our sin that sent Jesus to the cross, we can't say, oh, yeah, you know, I sinned, but I was just kind of, I was playing along with God's plan to, to forgive that sin at the cross, so it was really, it was cool, right? We can rationalize and justify it. Sometimes if we look at the results, we can say, oh, good, it was, it was meant to happen that way. That's, yeah, that's how God meant it to be. I was, I was just on his plan that whole time, right? No. I had an experience a while back. I uh, got laid on my heart to invite this guy out to my small group Bible study, and so I just kept putting it off, and I didn't do it and didn't do it. I mean, it was weeks, maybe months, and finally I was like, oh, I just need to email this guy, so I sent him an email. Uh, he emails me the next day. And he's like, he's like, man, you will never believe this. I, it's been on my heart. I wanted to come to your small group, and I've been putting it off. And I finally said, hey, I'm just going to open up my email, and I'm going to send Ezra an email and ask him what time his small group is and all this stuff. When he opened up his email to send me that email, my inbox, my email was sitting in the inbox, right? So it was God's perfect timing. He's like, man, I took that as a sign from God. Like, wow, like I was going to email Ezra and ask, and then there's an email sitting there inviting me to the group. How amazing! 
And when he told me that, I could have rationalized and said, man, God, thank, thank you that I procrastinated so long to the point where it was just your perfect timing. Man, I was, you and I, we were tuned in, right? I said, God, thank you that by your grace, you were able to work even through my brokenness, even through my flaws, that you were still able to work things out in your perfect timing. But it didn't mean the next time I felt like I should invite somebody, I'm like, I'm kind of awake because procrastinating worked good last time, right? No, it was a kick in the butt like, man, how much better would have been if I would have just been obedient? What, if, what would have God have done if I had been obedient right away? I'll never know because I missed that opportunity, right? Sometimes I'll come, believe it or not, you guys might not believe this, but sometimes I come with a sermon not as well prepared as I would hope, right? Like I, I, I tried, but for whatever reason, life or different things got in the way. And inevitably, sometimes after those sermons, people will come up and be like, man, that was exactly the word I needed to hear. Thank you. I mean, God spoke right through you to my heart today. And I don't walk out saying, man, what am I wasting all this time studying for? I should just, just walk up and wing it every week, right? No, I prepare as hard as I can in diligence, but I trust that God can work whether I'm well prepared or not. I believe that and I know that, but it doesn't morally excuse me from my responsibility to do my best to prepare to, to show you what God is showing me in Scripture, right? And so you guys can apply this to your own life, right? That um, we know what God wants for us because he lays it out in here, right? Like he's, he's laid out, like we need to live in line with this. And sometimes we get out of line with this and God, by his grace, still works through us and still does good things, but that doesn't excuse us that we're called to live his way. And when we do it, we experience the joy and the blessing of being used by him. And, and, and instead of sheepishly having to come and say, God, thank you, man. I'm such a mess. And yet you still, I'm just humbled that you would use me. We get to say, wow, God, Look at this beautiful picture. I was obedient to you, and look what you did, man. This is awesome. I want to tell others about it. So we get a choice, right? We get to choose which one of those, which, which one would you rather be? <laughs> the disobedient clod who God just kind of used, and then you're like, man, thanks again, God. I can't believe it. Whether we like it or not, that's where we end up most of the time. But, but we should strive to be obedient to him because he can do amazing things, right? I got a little bit going on that, so I'm, let me, let me re rein it back in. God wanted to pick a fight. With them, and, and now before we now we're going to look at how this plays out in the rest of the passage. But I just want to say this: the nation of Israel was so complacent that God had to send a, a a wild man catalyst, Samson, into their life to like blow up conflict between them and the world. Because Jesus told us, we looked at this in the series uh, a little while ago. We looked at it in Matthew, uh, "Wise as serpents, innocent as doves." He talked about, "I didn't come to bring peace; I came to bring a sword." That when the gospel comes, that there will be conflict, and we shouldn't pursue conflict. We shouldn't be like trying to stir up fights, but we should speak the truth. And when we speak the truth, it's inevitably going to cause conflict. The same conflict that Jesus and his followers, the disciples experienced is a conflict that we're going to experience when we're standing on the word. The world does not embrace and love the word. And so we're going to experience conflict. And so I challenge you today to, to look at your life and say, man, am, am I standing on the word even when it's difficult and when it causes challenges for me? Or has my life become so uh, enmeshed and assimilated with the culture that I really can't see any difference, that, that, that I've just become complacent, that there's no, when, when the culture starts to push back on me a little bit, I just get, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'll just go your way. It's easier that way. God's laid out uh, guidelines of how I'm supposed to live and what relationships and stuff are, are supposed to look like, but uh, yeah, you know, I, nah, I'll just do what the culture says, right? Are, are you at that point? Are there things that you've compromised on that God's calling you today to say, no, hey, listen, I've called you. I've set you apart. You're my child. I want you to live in a special way. And are you compromising on that in a way uh, that's damaging your witness because you're just afraid of conflict? There's a, there's a level of godly conflict that we're called into, and if you're not experiencing any pushback 
if nothing that you're choosing to do in your life is creating any difference between you and the world, then you've got to say, hey, have I become complacent? And am I going to wait for God to send a wild man Samson in my life to kind of blow things up, <laughs> uh, to reignite that conflict that should be there naturally? Well, let's look at how this plays out. Let's pick up in verse 5. It says, Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. And then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. You guys know how it is when you got a young goat and you're just like, Wah! you guys all know that feeling. I don't, even, I don't even need an illustration. You guys know what that's like, right? May not culturally connect as well today as when it was written, but you get the, you get the point, right? A, a young goat versus a lion is not quite the same thing. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and he talked with the woman and she was right in Samson's eyes, right? He, he got, this is his follow-up. He's seen her. She looked... And he's like, man, maybe I was just out at the club. Maybe it was late at night, the, the, the strobe lights and stuff. Maybe she, so he went and he saw her. He's like, nope, this girl's the real deal. I'm in. I'm in. This is the one I want, right? She was right in his eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey, and he scraped it out into his hands, and he went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now, this is significant because uh, the, the carcass of the lion, it was a dead thing. And it had been laying there for a couple days, long enough for bees to build a hive in it, right? And so it was unclean. It was a, uh, they, Israelites were not allowed to touch dead things. There was purification they had to go through. And part of his Nazarite vow was he was not allowed to eat any unclean thing. And his mom was in on this too, right? She wasn't allowed to eat any unclean So now he took the unclean honey in his hands. This is gross anyways, right? He's got this big handfuls full of honey. He's like, hey, mom and dad, you want some of this honey, <laughs> right? Like, like, no thanks, right? But they took it. And here's the thing. It's, it, it's funny to picture, right? But um, he engaged in something that he wasn't supposed to do. He engaged in sin, and then he invited others into it. And he didn't tell them. And then he caused his mother to sin because of the sin that he had chosen to engage in. And that's how it works, right? Sin loves company. High schoolers are some of the stingiest people that you could ever meet, right? You go out for fast food. Hey, man, can I have one of your fries? No, get your own fry, right? But you go to an underage party where people are drinking, and you walk in, they're hey, man, you want a beer? Here, let me, you know what I mean, right? They're like shoving it down your throat. Why? Did they suddenly become the most generous people in the world? No, it's because they're like, man, I'm doing something I shouldn't do, and, and I want you to do it too, so then we feel good about it. Then if it's, it's all right, man. We're all doing it. It's cool, right? That's what sin looks like. Go all the way back to the garden. Eve took the apple and ate it, and then what'd she do? Adam, here, this is good. Eat some of this with me, right? So I would ask us this morning, looking at, are there things that you're engaging in, and you're like, man, all right, hey, yeah, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but it's not, hard, it's not hurting anybody but me. I'm just, you know, I, but if you're honest, is it having ripple effects? Is your sin having effects on those around you? Is it affecting your family? Is your sin causing others to sin, either knowingly or unknowingly? Sin has a way of spreading, right? It, it, you can't keep it contained. God may be calling you. There might be something that you've like rationalized up to this point because, well, hey, I haven't had to pay the price. God's still working. You know, I, it seems like he's still working in my family and, and it's not affecting anybody but me. But the reality is, is that, that he's, because of his grace, maybe he's working despite your sin. And that sin is having greater cost than you realize. And, and it's not something to play around with or continue with. It's time to put it to death. It's time to end it. Verse 10 picks up, his father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there for so the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. 
That was nice, right? Hey, I'm throwing, you're throwing a party? Here's 30 more people, right? You ever throw a party and have a bunch of more extra people show up, right? So, so they're having this big party. Samson said to him, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle out that we may hear it. See, they didn't have uh, like YouTube back then and they didn't have like, uh, uh, you know, karaoke machines, right? So they had to tell riddles. That was part of their party game, right? So the, the, this was their entertainment, right? So as, as they're going along in this feast, he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle, probably because he made it up. It's like, did your kids ever come and tell you a joke, right? Knock, knock. Who's there? Train. Train who? And then, you know, Obviously, you're never going to guess the answer because it's completely made up and doesn't make any sense, right? And so Samson's kind of throwing, this is like a no-win. Like, I don't know how they're going to get this riddle, right? And they come to realize that as well. So on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us the riddle, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. They went straight there, right? <laughs> hey, tell us the riddle or we're going to burn you and your house and your father, right? Philistines did not pull punches. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people, and you've not told me what it is. He said to her, Behold, I've not even told my mother or my father. How shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. Started on day four, wept till day seven, right? What a party. <laughs> Super enjoyable. On the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. And then she told the riddle to her people. The men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? He said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. And in hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been uh, his best man. This is like Jerry Springer stuff, right? <laughs> he loses the riddle. He goes and kills 30 people, and he's like, here, here's your clothes, runs off in a storm, and then the father's like, all right, hey, best man, do you want her? Here, take her. You know, we already threw the wedding, right? What a mess. Now, husbands out there, you know, and you can understand and relate to this, right? Like, if your wife is crying, all you want to do is stop the crying, right? You don't care about logic, reason, uh, sometimes morality, right? You're just like, you're crying. How do I get you to not cry? <laughs> Whatever it takes to get there, that's what I want to do. And that's what Samson experienced here. He said, listen, I just, you got to stop crying. What? Okay, fine. I'll tell you the riddle. And then she immediately uh, went and told her people. Now, uh, his choice in spouses is proving to not be very good here, right? His parents' intuition was kind of right, right? Like, uh, she's not proven, besides being uh, uh, good on the eyes. There's not much uh, else as far as quality. She cried. She was able to cry for three straight days. So that's something, right? It's an impressive quality that you're looking for in a wife, right? Um, but she was not a good choice. But, but he did this crazy thing, and then he went down and killed 30 men. So he has his own sense of justice. Okay, you did that. You cheated. I'm going to cheat too. I'll just go kill guys, take their stuff, and give it to you. Let's look at how it plays out in chapter 15. After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat as any of us would do. If we're going to see a wife and make up after a big fight, we take a young goat, we show up, right? Once again, hopefully we don't rip it in, in two with our hands. That might not go well. He said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. 
but her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead, right? So her father's wheeling and dealing, right? He's like, uh, he's ready to hand off the younger daughter in her place. Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. And so Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain, the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. And the Philistines said, who has done this? They said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. So apparently they weren't joking. That's like, <laughs> there is no level one, right? If the Philistines get mad, they burn you and they burn you. So killed her and her father burned them with fire. Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. So he's still operating in his own sense of judgment. He's doing what's right in his eyes. You did that to me. Now I'm going to do this to you, and then it's done. Then, 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 then the beef is squashed, right? So after he struck them, hip and thigh, with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. Then the Philistines came out and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam, and they said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have I done to them. And he, they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you to them into the hands of the Philistines. Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes, and they brought him up from the rock. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him, and then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. By the time you were like the 970th guy rushing at Samson, you probably would have thought like, hey, maybe this is a bad idea, right? Like, whap! And while he's doing it, he's singing, right? It's like this ancient war hero. He's singing this, this, this song. I mean, what an incredible dude, right? He said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath Lehi, which uh, translated means jawbone hill. And he was very thirsty and called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? God split open the hollow place that is Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called An-Hakor, uh, which translated means the spring of him who called. It's at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Crazy to see how it all plays out, right? Samson brings a lot of pain and difficulty upon himself, and that's not the end of it. It continues into the next chapter in an even more profound way. But we've been kind of hard on Samson, but I want to point out a couple things here. He is an embodiment of the people of Israel, but there are a few qualities that Samson had that, that God could use, right? Samson, first of all, he valued his countrymen. When the 3,000 came to tie him up, he said, hey, just promise me you're not going to try and kill me, right? And they're like, no, we're not going to do it. Because he's like, if you do... I will kill all of you, right? But, but I don't want to do that. I value. He valued and made a distinction between the people of Israel and the Philistines. 
Just a few judges ago, we looked at Jephthah who was striking down his countrymen as they were trying to cross the river when they said a word wrong, right? So, uh, so God honored the fact that, that Samson valued his people, the nation of Israel, over the Philistines. Secondly, Samson was willing to fight against them. Isn't this amazing? That how many guys went down to get Samson at the rock? 3,000 men, right? They come down, they turn him over, and then Samson fights how many Philistines? 1,000, right? Why didn't those 3,000 men attack the 1,000 Philistines and take him out, right? This is the moment for them to get behind Samson and rise up to battle, but they had completely lost their will to fight. They weren't even fighting for their independence anymore, but Samson was willing to fight. Despite all of his flaws and shortcomings and character inconsistencies, he had a will to fight for the Lord. And God said, I can use that. You value your people, I can use that. You have a will to fight, I can use that. And most importantly... Samson calls out to the Lord. In a season when Israel was no longer calling out to the Lord, they were no longer saying, God, save us. God, you have the power. Redeem us. Save us. Uh, rescue us. They weren't doing that. Samson did it. And you look at his prayer. It's not the most penitent prayer you've ever seen, right? <laughs> He's like, God, I just did all this for you, and now you're going to let me die of thirst? But he talked to him. Samson has this one-on-one relationship with God. He speaks to God. And God says, I can use that. When we're overwhelmed by our sin, we're all broken like Samson. We all have flaws. We all have things that are messed up about us. And so many times what we'll do is we'll allow that to drive us away from the Lord. We won't draw near to him. We'll say, oh, I'm too broken. God doesn't want to use me. He could never do anything for me. I'm not, uh, I'm not you know, I need to kick this habit. I need to clean myself up. I need to get better. Then, then God will be able to use me. If nothing else, look at Samson and see God can use a broken person. He doesn't want you to be broken. <laughs> He wants you to move into obedience, but don't use your, your brokenness as an excuse not to pursue God's will and not to be used by him to shrink back when he calls you to step forward. He knows you're broken. He knows you're broken more than you know. There's things that are broken about you you don't even know about yet. He knows about them, but he still desires to use you. Ephesians 2 says that when we're called into relationship with him, that he prepared us uh, to do good works, which he prepared for us beforehand to do, that we're his workmanship. He knows you're messed up, but he still wants to use you. And Samson, despite all the things that were messed up about him, was available to be used by God. And God said, I can work with that. I would encourage you today, make yourself available to God. Call out to God. God say, you know how broken I am. I can't get things right by your spirit. I need to be redeemed. I need to be changed. I need to repent of my sin. I need to turn away from it. But, but in the process of all that, I know that you can still use me and do great things through me. And so uh, when you call me to go and speak to my coworker or my neighbor, I'm not going to use the excuse of like, man, now I'm engaged in this sin that they don't even know about. I could never go witness to them. Go witness to them. They don't need to know about your sin, right? You need to deal with that sin. I'm not excusing that, but don't delay obedience, None of us is ever going to be perfect, and if you wait till you're perfect to be used and obedient by God, you'll never do it. No one ever would, except for the one. Throughout the history of the church, there have been, uh, uh, been, been so many church leaders, and every one of them had flaws. Martin Luther led the Reformation and did amazing things, but if you read some of the things that he had to say about the Jewish people, he said some horrible things, right? And you look at that, and you're like, man, that doesn't seem consistent with this great leader. But God used him despite his flaws. He, he accomplished things through him that... You look at uh, great leaders of the church, uh, Spurgeon and Tozer, uh, there's stories that come out where their, their home lives weren't the greatest home lives. It's not something you would emulate. They weren't always the most loving and compassionate men to their wives that they could have been, right? But, but God used that. 
I'm not a perfect man. I have flaws and, and things that are broken about me, and, and I recognize that, and I'm not proud of it, and I'm, I'm trying to change as much as I can. But God can use me. He's, I'm not waiting until I'm perfect to be used by him. And, and, and I would encourage you in that same way that he's not looking for you to be perfect. He's looking for you to be available. The, the Spirit can come on people and use them in powerful ways, uh, but that doesn't become an excuse for, for what they do. It doesn't rationalize away the things that they do. What we really are looking for is a Spirit-empowered life that demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit. When we're really working in the power of the Spirit and the Spirit is working in and through us, it's characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's the picture of Samson, right? <laughs> peace, patience, kindness, Right? He was empowered by the Spirit, but he was not demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit in this, right? Jesus tells us that there will be those that will come and say, didn't we cast out demons and didn't we do all these mighty works in your name? You're not doing those works without the Holy Spirit power, right? But Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. The fruit of the Spirit was not in your life. There was not a relationship. For all of his brokenness, Samson had a relationship with God. Are you pursuing a relationship with God? Are you seeking to know him, not to know about him, not to check off the right boxes? Are you seeking to be in relationship with God because he desires to be in relationship with you? I'll say this. Ultimately, Samson was disappointing on so many levels. And it, and, and it begs, there's this big vacuum in this story of being like, oh man, what if? What if Chip Kelly really knew how to run an offense? What if Andrew Bynum's knees actually worked? What if Samson would have sold out in obedience to that Nazarite vow? What if he would have said, God, I am fully available to you? We don't have to ask what if because we see a picture of that in Jesus. Jesus is the one who came and he sold out completely to obedience to the Father, that he poured himself out, that everything he did was within the power of the Spirit, that he was characterized by love and joy and peace and patience. He's the one to emulate. He's the one to follow after we live in the reign of the perfect judge, the one who brought ultimate salvation. Samson judged for 20 years. Jesus judges and reigns for eternity. And so all we have to do is follow that judge. We don't have to work for our own salvation. He's already brought it for us. We just have to rest in the salvation that Jesus has purchased on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for Samson and and seeing your strength and his weakness, that despite his flawed and broken character and nature, that you were able to use him, Lord. God, I just pray that um, I know for myself, I know uh, for us in this church, for many of us, that, that we're too complacent with living alongside the world and embracing the ways of the world in stark contrast to the obedience that you call us to. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to have influence over our culture, but not allow the culture to steamroll over us, God. It's a hard thing to do, and we can't do it in our own strength, but through the power of your Holy Spirit, I believe we can be a force for your name in this culture, and I pray that we would be uh, courageous and willing to take a stand for you, uh, to put away the sin that, that ensnares us and limits our, uh, our, our effectiveness. And you can work through our brokenness, God, but when you work through our obedience, we get to experience the joy of that. I pray that that would be the characteristic that defines us as a church and as people. And God, I pray if there's any here today who don't know you as their Savior, uh, that they would experience the joy of, of coming to a true relationship with you today. 
I pray this in the name of Jesus. If you would just keep your heads uh, bowed or your eyes closed for a minute. If you, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior and you've never placed your faith in him, I want to offer you the opportunity to do that today. And it's, uh, it's a simple thing that, that we're told that it's, it's the free gift of God that brings us salvation. It's nothing we do. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to make ourselves better. We come and receive the salvation and the free gift that Jesus has offered to us. And you do this simply by praying, Father, I recognize that I'm a sinner, that I've fallen short of your, your requirement. But now I ask you for forgiveness, and I believe that through Jesus I am forgiven. I thank you for this. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to reside in me, to teach me how to live in a way that honors you. I desire to know and to follow you. I pray this in the name of Jesus.